0: So, for many of you, Christmas is over, and you're back at work. Admin piled up over Christmas, feeling resentful for all those forms and the weird codes that they make you put in them. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and in this podcast I hope we can at least explain why that's important. This is the last of our festive fair, and next week we'll be back to our normal schedule. But until then, I bring you 17th century death, the Easter of Reed coats, and why the WHO cares about spaceship accidents. Firstly, we have the tale of John Grant, who had a strange hobby of collating all of London's deaths before that became a profession. John Appleby, Chief Economist at the Nuffield Trust, and Will Stahl-Timmons, the BMJ's data visualization designer, have had a look at the handwritten tables he created and joined me in the studio to talk about them. John, thanks for coming in and joining us on the podcast. Thanks Duncan. And Will, I think this is your first time in the studio given that uh, graphics aren't a particularly audio friendly (laughs) medium. Yeah, Um, you would think
1: that. I know not one but two different data visualization podcasts that exist so it's strange but yes it's good to be
0: (laughs) um i will have to have a listen and and figure out how that works but what we've got you here to talk about is death in 17th century london um now this is based on data uh collated by john grant um Mm. between when was it uh 1629 and 1660 um, so John you're a chief economist at the Nuffield you deal with data sets a lot is this the oldest data set you've looked at <laughs>
2: um, I think it probably is actually um, there is a there is quite a nice graph that the Bank of England have of interest rates which goes back to the 17th century as well by the way which the Bank of England is that old Um Yeah, and I I saw this uh, in an exhibition in the British Museum some time ago, and it was um, uh, the Bills of Mortality, um, put together by John Graunt, and I was very struck by a table I saw there that he put together, and it looked like a spreadsheet. Yeah. And um, I thought, well, that's interesting.
0: A spreadsheet Uh, drawn uh, on uh, parchment, hand drawn on parchment.
2: Yes. with the years across the top and causes of death down the side and lots of numbers and so on. Uh, so I was, I was quite intrigued. Now, I hadn't heard of John Grant before. Um,
0: no, could you tell us a little bit about him? Who was he?
2: Well, uh, I'm not a historian on this, but he uh, was not a statistician. He, was a, he grew up... His father was a, a haberdasher, I guess. Um, he took over the family business. He became quite wealthy... Um, although the Great Fire of London put pay to that in the end um, but, and he had lots of other interests and, and one of them uh, I'm not quite sure how he came to, to be an interest of his was uh, looking at these bills of mortality which were compiled in parishes in London and and collating them into and, and thinking about what the numbers meant and numbers of deaths or burials as they called them and uh, births or christenings as they called them then um, so he got into that, and he he actually wrote it up, and uh, was became a member of the Royal Society, and he his, he had he was friends with people like Samuel Pepys, uh, and various scientists, and so on.
0: Uh, the time of the gentleman scientists, I suppose. <clears throat> yeah. Um, there can't have been very many haberdashers slash <laughs> epidemiologists around there. Do you think he was uh, one of the first? epidemiologists anyway <coughs> not
2: well, he was certainly to my knowledge one of the first to get this sort of data together and not just sort of I mean the data had been collected and I should say that it was uh, uh, James I who mandated um, parishes in London to collect uh, weekly death data um, and sparked, it was sort of parish priests and things yeah. collecting this that's right and there were there were searchers they called them who went out to examine dead bodies and classify their cause of death uh, is very strongly linked to um, episodes of the plague. And these bills of mortality were actually sold to people uh, to see if they maybe move to a new area, move out of London and so on.
0: Um, interesting.
2: So that was the beginning. And what John Grunt really did was, was plough through these, um, these bills of mortality and compile them into a set of data. And I think the second thing he really did, which I think is really interesting to me, is, okay, so you've got your data together. Uh, so what? Um, why, why did you do it? And in fact, um, I've got a little quote here. At the end of his Bills of Mortality, his conclusions, and he says, um, it may now be asked, to what purpose tends all this laborious, puzzling and groping? I, why did I bother to do all this? And he has a whole list of things you know, in terms of Classifying causes of death is a good thing to know. Um, how many fighting men are they, as they call it?
0: This is the time of the uh, English Civil <coughs> War, so those kind of things were
2: exactly. important. Uh, what's, what's just the size of the population? Uh, I mean, this is the very basis of statistics, uh, even now. Uh, how many people are there? And there are still many countries in the world which don't have a total grasp on the, just the size of their population. So, if you don't have that, then you, you can't do a lot of other things. You can't plan for healthcare services. you you know what are the sort of policies you need to to do? How do you collect taxes and all this is some very basic stuff about the infrastructure of societies
0: um as you said uh, the 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 table that you looked at that looked like an Excel spreadsheet was hand drawn. This was all hand collated. This must have been an incredible you know amount of effort gone in to do this.
2: Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think I mean maybe we'll say you know in, in terms of having computers, <laughs> um, at a press of a button, uh, I can make a massive mistake, as the joke goes now, <laughs> with Excel and 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 other you know um, software programs that we use to analyse data. So on the one hand, yes, it's, it's you can do things incredibly fast and incredibly easily. You could also make massive mistakes. But yeah, he, it was all put together by hand, and in. In fact, when I put the numbers into a spreadsheet uh, from, from uh, the pamphlet he did, uh, I did actually discover just a couple of small mistakes. A
0: few additional Yeah. So as we said, this is kind of a s- snapshot of, of life and death uh, between 1629 um, to 1660. So that was a, a really tumultuous time in British history. Um, there was uh, the Civil War. Uh, and the beheading of a king um, Cromwell came in and then there was a reformation um, and yet this data was collected over that whole period c- consistently what's that kind of historic turmoil captured in that data?
2: Um, well I think we have to presume that data was collected consistently I mean, uh, um, I mean certainly not all deaths will have been in this in this information um, it's, it's, it's more of a sample if you like but probably a, a pretty good sample Um, uh, Quite how normal life sort of carries on in the midst of a civil war, uh, well, yeah, it generally does. Um, There may have been some periods which were affected. Um, I mean, another way in which it is reflected in the data is the numbers of um, deaths from execution uh, exactly around the period of the civil war. There's a huge spike in in the data for executions, yes.
0: And that's, is that attributed to the Civil War? Is it just...
2: uh, I really, I I presume so, yes. Yeah,
0: okay. Um, Were there any other patterns in there that um, you spotted or will when you were crunching this data to try and pull a visualisation out of it? What patterns did you spot?
1: Yeah, that was interesting. When I was looking through in Tableau and trying to look at each individual... Uh, cause of death there were certainly a a few that jumped out I mean the big one is the plague obviously that's the one that we pulled out in the online version of this article and it seems that these kind of huge uh, spikes of plague where a significant number of people in London's population would would die would happen roughly every sort of 30 to 40 years around that time that wasn't unusual
0: yeah I mean and people should look at that because it is incredibly uh, obvious Um, John, anything else?
2: Well, one thing thing to say about the plague figures, um, and I think this is something that Graunt was was, um, as I said, he'd collated the data, but the other thing he did was make observations, he called them, about the data and um, one of the things he said about the plague was, there's a lot of superstition about things like this, you know, was it something to do with the alignment of the planets? Was it something to do with uh, kings coming to power? um, And various other factors, and his observation was no, it wasn't any of that stuff. There was something else going on. There's some more irregular thing happening. There was a sort of pattern which you know people thought well that must be linked to something, um, and it probably was linked to something, but it wasn't. You know the you know the the alignment of uh, the planets and whatever. Um, and he suggested some more environmental factor. He didn't know what it was.
0: So it's just the beginning of, uh, of using data to kind of examine those patterns and make those uh, connections. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And obviously, this was all pre-Enlightenment. So this was just at the time when we were beginning to kind of start thinking empirically about the world and, and to start actually examining these these things free of superstition, mm. as it were. Mm. Um, what I noticed is that uh well what I think everyone will notice if they look at it, um, is the names of things um that are, are put in here. Things that people will recognise today, jaundice, for example. Um, but there are lots of other things like impostume, uh liver grown, um just rupture people just rupturing it sounds like um uh, did you have any favorites uh, within those uh, strange data within that data set of those strange names
2: I, I quite like just found dead in street which Sorry. is sort of a fairly bald um, uh, sort of description of a cause of death there's something called King's evil as well uh, which is interesting and I think was to do with a f- a belief that this illness could be cured by the touch of the king. A wolf. Wolf, yes. Well, it's quite interesting. I had a a bit of a Twitter exchange about this, and um, somebody pointed out that it was probably lupus, not uh, an actual wolf uh, killing somebody in London. And I think uh, they're almost certainly right that it was lupus. But of course, lupus is the Latin for wolf. I did actually look up uh, when was the last wolf seen near London, <laughs> and it was, it's pretty close to the beginning of the 17th century, actually, um, and there were wolves around in as late as the 18th century in Scotland, but... Um, So it's, yeah, so that was probably lupus. But
1: it was a fascinating idea, wasn't it? That it was almost like being devoured by a wolf. That's kind of the reason it was called that, I believe. Exactly, yeah,
2: yeah. We did our best to um, look these up, um, and uh, sometimes you find that these are old fashioned phrases which have now, you know, been superseded by other things, quite often Latin Latin names. Um, But it's been, yes, it was quite difficult to line some of them up with uh, what we understand now. I was quite intrigued
1: by Mother Rising of the Lights, which I think restri- refers to a constriction of the of the breathing in yes. way, the, the sort of throat.
2: Yes, I think so, yeah.
0: And some are very obvious, like Painted and Bath.
2: And some are sort of... There's a sort of category error. Some t- well, not an error, but it's a sort <laughs> of mixing things up. So um, uh, there is one here called... Well, it's spelt suddenly, but uh, presumably suddenly. Now... <laughs> that could overlap with some other things. So the cause isn't really that you died suddenly. It's just that's sort of that's more of a description um, of, of what happened. And I suppose the
1: people that would be collecting these statistics wouldn't necessarily be medically trained. So oh
2: no, absolutely not. No, no.
1: Maybe part of the problem that he
0: had.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and I suppose that goes back to again interrogating this data. Uh, it's quite hard to actually work out um, how accurate. Some of these diagnoses were, given um, well the difficulty of doing that now and and our very limited kind of medical science back in those days.
2: Yes, well, people didn't go around with a, a manual issued by the World Health Organization then you know it was um, I mean people have been talking about different sorts of death for for millennia, to be honest. I mean, you know the Greeks would think about different causes of death and so on. Um, And over time, I mean, this is, you know, a snapshot in time of the sorts of classifications that people were were using. Um, Now we've got the international classification of diseases and it's a sort of agreed through the World Health Organization across all countries. There are are literally thousands and thousands of categories now uh, and classifications. Um, I mean, how they're actually applied in real life. I mean, there's still, uh, I mean, there's not a single cause of death, usually. Um, People will die and they'll have multiple things wrong with them and so on. So uh, there's still a little bit of vagueness about that. As John
0: and Will explained there, the biggest difficulty when looking at that data, beyond the addition errors, was working out what was meant by some of those causes of deaths. Were they accurately recorded? Was there consistency over time and across the different places in which they were collected? We may never know. But since John Grant's time, we've tried hard to be much more systematic about categorising medical information, assigning codes to specific things. But, as our next guest found, that led to its own difficulty.
3: I'm uh, Richard Williams. I'm a, I'm a software engineer and research fellow at the University of Manchester. Uh, where I work for the uh, the Centre for Health Informatics.
0: When I was telling people, oh, I'm off to uh, do a podcast about coding, their eyes kind of glazed over a little bit. It's not <laughs> the kind of thing that people generally uh, associate with fun or the Christmas edition. Um, why was it that you decided to uh, start writing this article about the, uh, the esoteric nature of some of the coding that we're, we're left with?
3: Yeah, that's a pretty good question. Um, So, most of the work that I do involves interrogating um, medical records of patients. And in order to do any sort of uh, interrogation of patient records, uh, you need to know about clinical coding. Um, And so I spend a lot of my time creating sets of clinical codes, which I can then use to search um, patient databases. When you, when you spend as much time as I do searching through these terminologies, you do come across these slightly bizarre codes, and you wonder how they ever got there in the first place. And so I thought, well, it's probably, I can probably do a piece about uh, some of these more unusual codes that you wouldn't expect to find. Uh, and then it, it went from there, really
0: great well thank you um let's just dive straight into it could you uh go through some of the weird codes that you found some of those those unexpected ones
3: yes well um <laughs> do you want to take a guess how many codes do you think there are for falling off a cliff there are 11 different codes for falling off a cliff in reed read codes so they're the uh they're the coding system used in in uk primary care um, so there's there's fall from cliff just generically there's there's fall from cliff at home fall from cliff at school fall from cliff on farm, um, so these are obviously some quite bizarre codes that I came across, um, but there's there's there's, there's plenty of others. So there's the, the amount of things you can fall from is is basically unlimited.
4: Um,
3: <laughs> you can yeah you can fall from turrets um, haystacks flagpoles. Um, there's a whole load about falling off boats um, but they they go into detail about whether you've fallen off the boat whether you were pushed off the boat or whether you jumped off the boat um and, and then there's even ones for falling off burning boats as well uh, just in case you wanted to be really specific <laughs> about the sort of boat you've fallen off
0: um you've mentioned there a little bit you've got read codes there's snowmed um icd-10 what's going on in this world of coding why are there so many sort of different schemes and and how do they interrelate
3: I think the first terminology that was created was was ICD I mean that's been around for um, at least 100 years I think and that was set up as a way to classify different diseases but more recently Uh, People have thought, well, actually, I want a terminology which can describe just medications, maybe, or a terminology that can describe uh, just lab tests or just observations you might make on a person. Uh, Because you're going to get some uh, situations uh, in healthcare where you're going to want to record certain things really well, but you don't care about other things. So you get all these different terminologies which are very specific in their focus. Um, Then comes along SNOMED. So SNOMED actually has grown out of part of read um so there are two versions of read version two and version three and they're, they're both currently used in primary care snomad developed out of version three of read code and it tried to it tries to get around some of the problems that you have in these terminologies so one of the problems you have with these terminologies mm-hmm. is this idea of um inheritance So they tend to be structured in a hierarchy. So you'd have a code for um, problems of the circulatory system, and then that would have uh, child codes that were types of problems of the circulatory system. So you might find um, sort of heart attacks, strokes, that sort of thing. Um, But the problem with that is that you can't have multiple inheritance. So a code can't simultaneously be an example of a, a circulatory disease. And it can't also be know, something else uh, and this this leads to problems because you end up with with things which could fit in two places in the terminology. you have to pick where they go.
0: I see um so going back to you know what we talked about at the beginning, the difference between falling off a cliff at school and a falling off a cliff um on the farm. it feels like from your explanation there there is kind of an unnecessary amount of detail within that. Why have a separate code to define where, as opposed to a a relationship to define where?
3: So this this actually uh, relates to something that's called uh, pre- and post-coordination. So most people probably haven't heard of this. I'll I'll just explain. If if your terminology is pre-coordinated, then that means in advance, you've thought of every single possible thing that can happen and you've given it a code. Whereas in post-coordinated terminology, you give yourself the flexibility to define codes as you go along. So as as an example of that, in a pre-coordinated terminology, you say, well, we need a code for every single diagnosis. Fine, so we have a 1,000 diagnoses. But now if I want to have a code for um, a patient who has a history of that diagnosis, maybe it hasn't happened now, but it was in the past, then in a pre-coordinated terminology, I need another 1,000 codes for every single diagnosis. I now need a history of that diagnosis. If I want a a family history of, then I need another 1,000 codes, family history of diabetes. If I want to be really specific and say that this patient has a paternal family history or their grandparents had it, then again, I need another code for every single diagnosis.
0: You could see how that would just grow and grow and grow and grow. It it just grows out of hand.
3: And this is where you get this fall off cliff occurrence at school. I mean, that, 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 there's also a mistake going on there because what's happened is they've thought of things that can happen to people and they've thought of places that things can happen. Um, and then they've combined the two together and they've come up with some, clearly no one's checked it and they've come up with some bizarre ones. So they, they've, they've come up with the 11 places that things can happen to you. And they're the, it can happen at home, it can happen at school, it can happen at a recreation ground. Um, and then they think of things that can happen. So falling off cliffs. um I don't know, getting shot, getting stabbed, getting run over. And then they've simply just combined them all together. And for every single thing that can happen, they've put 11 codes, so it can happen at any different place. Uh, and so that that shows that in a pre-coordinated system, you end up with all these crazy codes. Now, obviously, you, if someone had checked it beforehand, they might not have included um, fall off the school cliff. But But I guess it was done by a computer and they didn't notice. <laughs> Uh, but once you move to SNOMED, SNOMED is is partially post-coordinated, which means that if you want to have a paternal family history of diabetes, then potentially you can select a code for diabetes, a code that is history of, and a code that is paternal, and then you string it together, and you've you've created uh, a new code in effect, and that didn't have to be created in advance when the terminology was made. So that makes that makes SNOMED a lot more powerful than READ.
0: So, trying to foresee all of the potential causes of injury and death is a Herculean, or perhaps even Sisyphean, task. And, as Richard explained, it was the WHO that originally took that on. If you look at their website, which lists all of the items in the International Classification of Diseases, ICD, which is now on its 11th edition, if you go on there and delve into its depths, you'll find a lot of interesting things, including the ability to code for a spaceship-related injury in your data. Our last guest explains how that got in there.
4: So, my name is Robert Jacob. I'm the head of the classification team in WHO. And, uh, well, our most recent and biggest and well-known work is certainly the work on the 11th revision of the International Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems. And if you look uh,
0: at the WHO's website where um, where you can go and have a look at all these codes, it's amazing the amount of specificity you have in them. You know, you can code specifically if you're in an air vehicle crash, um, whether that's in a microlight or a hot air balloon or a hand glider or a plane, maybe a private one or a commercial one. Um, And now there's even a spacecraft in there. So how is it that these codes, um, who is it that decides, uh, you know, what codes to include in um, ICD-11? And how do you make that decision?
4: So I- ICD is, a, first of all, a statistical classification that comes up with a set of categories that have a certain level of specificity that are feasible and relevant for the different users of the ICD. One most famous one is the mortality statistics, but we also have it in, in morbidity, in uh, uh, payment systems uh, for primary care use in quality and safety. And, and a range of other uses. So the level of detail that comes on the ICD needs something that is, been, is feasible internationally and nationally in routine data reporting. On the other hand, a statistical classification needs to have categories for everything. That's why we have categories that are called other specified uh, so that if there is more detail available, we can say, okay, it's maybe not in the core attention of, of the analysis, but it's still possible to find a place for that condition. And actually it's very good you mention the example with the spacecraft, because for example, yes, you can caught a spacecraft accident of, of any kind in case it happens. But if you look at the classification, you find something, uh, a category that's called other um, transport accident. And there you can add detail if you want from an extra list to specify in more detail what you have. Now, I think we won't have that many people injured by spacecraft <laughs> accidents, luckily. <laughs> but But if it would occur, there would be a place in the classification that's in the spirit of the classification.
0: Sure. So who
4: decides on what comes in the classification? Well, uh, anybody can submit a proposal for editing, changing, adding something in the ICD. And uh, that should be underpinned by scientific evidence, by explanation why this uh, detail needs to be recorded or should not be recorded. And then this will be examined is sufficient um, uh, information provided to be able to discuss that proposal. And if so, we have a maintenance process in place where uh, proposals are assessed for their uh, scientific uh, evidence level where uh, working groups that focus on mortality uses, morbidity uses, and other aspects that are uh, relevant to the use of ICD verify whether this proposed content would have any impact, what kind of impact, if it's relevant to the use cases. And the collated information is being then uh, reviewed by what we call our classifications, and Statistics Advisory Committee that then will sum up and come up with a summary suggestion proposal to WHO advising on whether a certain change should be made or should be not be made, or whether some edits to the originally proposed change are necessary in order to fit into the overall classification system. So this is how the process works.
0: Mm. And how did spacecraft get in there, for example? Because as you, you said before, you know, it's, it's fairly unlikely there will be that many people, um, at least now, injured by, um, by spacecraft.
4: See, and that's exactly the point. For example, in ICD-9, the spacecraft accident was pre-coordinated. There was a single code for this kind of accident. And uh, I think uh, in the early 70s, there was the vision that after reaching the moon soon, there uh, would be some space travel. Mm-hmm. I think we know that this has not become a uh, routine um, uh, part of our daily life. Uh, so so it's rather rare And and like also in other parts of the classification, um, we have the opportunity to uh, specify that this other transport accident was related to, for example, a spacecraft, but we have many other things that you can list so that you add a second code, you do post-coordination in order to add that information if this is true. Still, in primary statistics, we will look just at other transport accidents because things like like car accidents or uh, motorbike accidents and others are much more frequent and, uh, let's say, much more relevant also in terms of public health prevention and addressing
0: people injured through this. Mm. And if we sort of keep our mind on on public health interventions, um, one example in um, an SED cal- classification uh, is assault um, through various means. And one of those means is um, a corrosive substance. But within that, there isn't the specificity that we've talked about um, in in other ways. So, you know, you you can't code for, say, an acid attack as opposed to an alkali, as opposed to bleach, for example. So um, when it comes to to some categories, a bit like that, are you still waiting for people to propose changes? Or do you have, you know, a rolling program which which looks at... um, some of these classifications and 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 wonders whether you know maybe it is time for these to change, even if there hasn't been a proposal from from outside the WHO.
4: So so uh, well, it is important to note that for example, if you have an assault by any substance in the ICD11 now, you would use the code for assaults by a substance, for example, and then you can go to what we call the extension codes. And you can identify the specific substance that was part of the assault. It's also true for, let's say, adverse effects and many other things. We have a whole list of substances, be it substances that are used in medical use or substances primarily not used in medical use. And then you can specify that level of detail. As you can imagine, the um, realm of substances is very large. And so... um, How to say, making pre-coordinated categories for all sorts of substances that may be used for assaults would end up in an enormous explosion of, of categories, most of which would have one, two or three cases. And as we have seen also in the past, in in total other parts of the classification, in many cases, still the substance might not be be mentioned. As a result, uh, uh, then you have many, many cases, the majority of the cases or half of the cases, coded to unspecified substance. And this then means that statistically, if you have two mentions of one substance and three mentions of another substance, and then 100 mentions of substance unspecified, it's very hard to um, use that kind of information. Of course, course you can use it if you're in a controlled environment where instructions are given that everything must be documented all the time in high level of detail. But as I say, in routine data collection, this is not necessarily the case
0: that pre-coordination that you you were talking about there that was happening back in earlier versions of icd when did you when did uh, when did the thinking about that change
4: oh actually the thinking about that changed never because also icd-11 has pre-coordinated categories to a certain level so just to give you an example i may have a fracture fracture of a bone And of course, we pre-coordinate and telling what bone is fractured, because without this, the information would be rather meaningless. So there's always a level of pre-coordination as has been the case in ICD-10. And also in ICD-10, we had notions of post-coordination, where you say with code combinations, you could add details. So for example, for uh, fractures in that case, uh, you could uh, code with a separate code, uh, open or closed fracture. Um, for some musculoskeletal conditions, you could add information about uh, more anatomical detail. Um, we had instructions in many places where, you say, um, a certain disease caused by substances, there was the instruction, say, add additional code from the external course chapter to uh, code in more detail what kind of group of substances was involved. And even in the chapter one, that is the chapter on infectious diseases, we had a whole section where specific infectious agents were mentioned to be used in code combination with certain uh, infections of uh, in the organ systems chapter so, so the whole notion of pre and post coordination is not very new I would say the terminology has become more prominent in view of more people uh, using the classification and of course also advances in, in uh, documentation and the possibility of documenting uh, content.
0: As I said at the beginning, this is the last of our podcast to tide us over the festive period. We'll be back to normal next week. We've got big plans for the podcast in 2019, so expect some changes. You'll just have to keep on subscribing and downloading to hear what those are. Until then, here's wishing you a very happy 2019. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.